At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible. With a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Two, one, and we are rolling. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have the author of the Canadian bestseller, Kids These Days, Dr. Jody Carrington. Jody, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to join you, finally. Finally, after, our, after uh, a rigmarole. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you for sending me a copy of your book. That is awesome, and uh, it's got a place of pride in our house. Uh, we've got so much to talk about today. What, where I wanted to start, um, we're going to stay on the trauma track today, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, you, wherever we need to go, I'm happy to go there. 100%. Now, you've been a busy lady. You've been uh, doing speaking gigs all over the place and just go, 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 talking to tens of thousands of people in the last year. Uh, one of the places that I'd like to start so that people who are new to the whole trauma thing and the path of recovery, if that's where they are right now, childhood trauma. Uh, can it, uh, There's all this woo-woo stuff out there that says um, it can start at birth or even in utero. Uh, what, are your, what do you think? Is that possible? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it. So um, I'll just, I'll tell you, I'm a child psychologist and uh, I worked for 10 years at the Alberta Children's Hospital here in Alberta, uh, or sorry, just outside of Calgary or in Calgary, sorry. And um, I spent a lot of time working with kids in trauma and I'm not a huge fan of kids in trauma. My PhD started out in police psychology um, and I'm not a huge fan of kids. I really am a huge fan of the people who hold them. Uh, but when I did that, I took this job for 10 years and there was a lot of things that I learned about uh, trauma and really what it means, because I think if we're going to start there, there, there's not a very clear understanding about what that means. There's a lot of things that we've identified that are, can be experiences that typically lead to traumatic responses, but we don't really clearly define it well. And so I think for me, what, how it makes the most sense right now is that trauma is defined as any experience encoded in terror. So what is traumatic for you may or may not be traumatic for me, depending on whether or not I encoded in, in terror. Does this make sense? Okay. Yeah. So for example, we both could be in Afghanistan and I could be in a really great spot. I have a beautiful supportive team. We're not, you know, in charge of anything that gets really tricky or really scary. We have predictable routines. We go over, we come back, we do all of those things. Yeah. I can come back having not encoded anything in terror. Okay. I could stay here and be at my, I just go in for some volunteer training, uh, you know, every Wednesday and one Wednesday I'm at training and some asshole comes in, brings a dog. Uh, he's a dog breeder. His pit bull goes crazy, bites the shit out of me. Everybody gets in a punching match. Somebody pulls out a gun. We call the cops, all the shit. And, uh, I go, I encode that in terror because I've never been more scared in my life. Right. And everybody says, go home, go home, go home. You're fine. Right. I got PTSD. Right. The feller who was in Afghanistan didn't just by virtue of being there does not get it. Do you understand? I think so. Does this make sense? 
Do, does it make sense? Okay, giraffe. I'm now like. Well, the the it. common denominator is is terror. That it has to have that stamp. It has to have that stamp, which means if I am surrounded by a bump, bunch of people who walk me home, who help me make sense of hard things, we are wired for it. Whether you have been, you've buried your own child, whether you have, I mean, I've sat in front of people, humble mamas, people who have done six tours in Afghanistan, people who have done incredibly hard things. And I would say this, the same thing to them as I would say to, to anybody who, who's in a tough spot right now, whatever you got on your plate in front of you, you're wired for it. What we forget is that we're wired for connection. And when hard things come, the first thing we do is armor up. The first thing we do is we go into fight or flight, we shut down, and that is the very thing that is required to get through it. Well, that's a perfect segue for my next question here, because um, with connections and relationships being one of the biggest things that you talk about, and of course the two are linked, you can't... uh, um, have one without the other. You can't have a good relationship without good connections. But um, how does the trauma affect those connections and those relationships? Well, it's interesting because the, the very definition of trauma, right, is when I encode something in terror, which means I'm in fight or flight. I encode primarily when my lid is flipped, my prefrontal cortex is up, so it's in my limbic system, the most primitive part of my brain. When that part is activated, what happens is I'm hypervigilant, I'm jumpy, Um, I tend to have difficulty sort of remembering things or concentrating. And when I'm in that place, I have trouble showing up as my best self. I have trouble stepping into relationships, noticing nuances. I look for all the shit that can go wrong. And so I'm very tuned into the bad guys. I'm very tuned into loud noises. I'm very tuned into anything that can get me, which means I miss all the subtleties. I miss my wife grabbing my hand. I miss, you know, my child, you know, laughing about bubbles. I haven't slept, so I'm irritable as fuck. And I don't get, do you understand? I just pick up on all of the things. And so it makes it very difficult for me to get back to who I really am, which is this remarkably smart, kind, funny soul who once loved his kids and serving this country or, you know, whatever the deal was in this place. Or I was a teacher who once really wanted to teach kids. And now after I've been in a few experiences where I've been assaulted or I feel like, you know, I've been harmed in some way, I have trouble stepping back in and and believing that there is good in people, that these babies and families that I serve are actually kind. And so it really hampers our ability to find joy. And the heart of all mental illness is the capacity to have that dual awareness, to be able to say, to stay calm in your own body while you look at other people at the same time where you notice things. Empathy, kindness, compassion only are alive when I'm regulated. One of the things that I hear often in our, in our peer support groups or is all the divorces, all the breakdowns of relationship. And it's usually because of the same thing, although not everybody is self-aware enough to to look in the mirror and realize that they are the asshole because of their trauma. And uh, how I tried to explain it to to, to some of them who are really beating themselves up is we, we are trained for aggression. That's how it saves us. Uh, aggression saves your life. So aggression comes at you. The training is go with 10 times more aggression. That's how you save yourself and it's how you save your partner or your unit. Um, and that creates different neural pathways, which are great for combat, uh, necessary, absolutely required, but it's yeah. the shits for life. 
Because oh, anything you, right? you perceive as a threat, which can simply be being, being challenged, uh, so somebody asks you a question that conflicts with your worldview, that can be enough to, to set somebody into fight mode. Exactly. And thus the, uh, the relationships just absolutely crumble. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to ask you was, um, there is now some suspicion, and I'm, I'm certainly suspicious, that uh, PTSD, or um, ADHD rather, is not actually its own separate thing, but it's in fact simply a symptom of trauma injury, of, uh, of mental trauma injury. Uh, is there anything to that? What are your thoughts? ADHD is absolutely a real thing. And there's lots of kids who have ADHD that have don't have um, significant trauma histories. Okay. So we are really clear about the neurological condition um, of ADHD. What happens is it is very difficult because of the subjective way in which we assess for it. That a lot of times when I look at kids who have experienced significant trauma, they would also meet criteria for ADHD. So when I look at, you know, the very definition, the very criteria of ADHD, oftentimes at the children's hospital, the vast majority of inpatients had a diagnosis of ADHD, which means they were emotionally dysregulated, irritable, inability to concentrate, lack of uh, memory, loses track of time, doing all of these things that happens when you're in a state of fight or flight. There's a huge difference between kids who actually have a legitimate diagnosis of ADHD or an adult that has a legitimate diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, so it's an absolutely, it's a real thing. What we often try to do is diagnose people with ADHD when really there's an underlying trauma history. And all of us have a trauma history. It is how we um, then get through it or process it that allows us to regulate emotion. So, you know, you talked a little bit about the book, but the one thing that I think is, has influenced me right the most in this world of uh, trauma is really understanding the heart of it, which is the neurological heart of trauma is really something called emotional regulation. And emotional regulation is something that means like, how do you not lose your, your fucking mind? Okay. So I'm going to take you through this process with kids because this is how it's best understood in my world. When you bring a baby home from the hospital, the only way they let you know what they need is they get emotionally dysregulated. They cry, they lose their friggin' minds. Okay. And the job of big people is to soothe or calm that baby enough time so that eventually they start to have those skills themselves. So they don't have any skill to emotionally regulate the big people. It's our job to help them emotionally regulate. And then we get back to who this baby really is. You understand? Roger that. Making sense? Okay. So you, you bring a baby home from the hospital. They cry. We do this. Lab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 And we feed and we change your bottom and we tend to and nurture you until you start to encompass some of those emotional regulation strategies yourself. The more I do this in the presence of a child, the less somebody has to do that for my child when I'm not there. I am showing them how to regulate emotion. I can't tell them. I can't say to an infant, calm down, <laughs> use your words. I cannot tell you how to calm down. I have to show you. And here's the biggest mistake we make in the world of military and first responders is that we tell people how to do shit. We do not show them. We are not led by a group of people who are emotionally regulated that can say, look at me, look at me, corporal, come here. We're okay. Drop your shoulders for me, buddy. We're going to do this. You got this. Let's go. We tell them, we bark orders, we explain things, all of that's necessary, but I am not going to tell you how to calm down or that you matter. I have to show you. Huh? Through mirroring so and matching. That, all of those things, but I yeah. also have to be that clinical presence that, or that, sorry, that, that presence that allows you to calm down. It's like, think about this when you're on um, an airplane 
the primary role of when there's turbulence, there's always turbulence generally on every flight. What if every time during the flight, the flight attendant, and it got really turbulent, looked panicked or started to say, everybody stay calm. <laughs> it's what's going to happen to everyone lose their shit. Your job is to keep serving peanuts. Your job is to say, okay, okay. Yeah. Would you like something else? Even if internally you're losing your goddamn mind, right? This is the job of emotional regulation. We cannot lead a troop, a team through hard things unless we show them how to do it. You can't tell them. And the more I help you regulate emotion, I show you how to do that, the more you incorporate that strategy yourself. What happens when we get into trauma is we flip our lid, we lose our minds. You refer to that a little bit. I need you to flip your lid when you're getting ambushed. I don't need you to be able to have access to everything you've learned, your breathing skills, your pin number on your bank card, your wife's maiden name. You don't need to know any of that shit in that moment. You need to get back to the very basic skills of fight or flight. The issue is that only lasts for about 20 seconds. What I need then is how do I incorporate, how do I calm down, how do I drop my shoulders so I have access to target practice, so I have access on how to accurately load an 8K something something. I don't even know that shit. How do I have that? Do you know? That is what That lives when I'm calm. When I'm not calm, I lose access to this. Like if you're getting ambushed and you're like, holy fuck, holy fuck, oh my God, oh my God, all these things are happening to me. You do not have access to anything you know how to be true. Right. You, you, you don't know how to you, you lose your skill, you lose capacity to lead your team. And so one of the biggest things we got to learn is how to regulate emotion in times of distress, because when you stay distressed, you come home distressed and you're irritable and jumpy. The only way you work through hard things is when somebody shows you. So, OK, OK, tell me where you feel it. Hardest part. Let's go. Then I start to put that prefrontal cortex back on. Does that make sense? It does. And is again, a perfect segue to what I wanted to um, get your input on next, which is the different types of the different modalities of trauma. As, uh, sometimes people pull out their trauma penises to compare. Mine's bigger than yours. And that's what I wanted to ask about. So the different types of trauma, let's say sexual, sexual trauma, physical trauma, emotional um, emotional abuse, or as we're touching on operational trauma from being a police officer, paramedic, soldier, anything like that. Is there any use in dividing them into different categories? Like what makes them different and what makes them the same? Yeah. I I mean, what I think is that, um, they all require, so oftentimes when we're pulling out our trauma penises, what's happening is I am desperate. I am desperate for somebody to hear the, the audacity, the, the, the experience of my story. And when we get into this sort of comparative process, it is the thief of anything good. Because what happens is we say, oh yeah, well, that wasn't bad. I was, I was at Afghanistan or I was to Afghanistan three times. Oh yeah. Well, I was part of that, you know, that scene where four cops were killed. Oh, oh, oh. And we're looking for people to just stop and acknowledge it. Wow. Oh my God, buddy. What was that like? Tell me more. Three words, change your life. Tell me more. The top of the pain funnel. There you go. And you don't need an answer. I don't need an answer. What I got to do is I got to hear it and see it and feel it with you, not for you, with you. And then we start to talk about what we do about it. When we hear the degree of pain that many of your listeners have experienced, we try to fix it. Have you went for a run 
Are you drinking your water? Well, you know what? At least you're home now, right? At least you're, you can be surrounded by people who love you desperately and feel extremely lonely. The big thing that ties together most of the first responders I've worked with is loneliness. They feel so isolated and alone in this process. And people say to them, well, you have people who love you. Like, look at your kids, you know, look at your, your wife. That's fucking irrelevant if you're in terror, right? It's not that people don't love you. That's not the issue. It is how you're able to process that. Does this make sense? It does. And it's um, the, the sense of isolation is quite common for veterans who leave the military because now there's nobody to talk to. Right. And, and even when you do talk, I mean, tell me this even in your peer support groups, right? Like you're sitting around talking and you're listening to people like, you know, sort of telling their feelings or their stories or all those things. It, it's not uncommon to feel isolated even in that arena, right? Because your specific experience, your specific terror is different than others. Now it feels good to be able to say, oh my God, you feel this too, right? 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 What I want to be able to do is settle that experience of fight or flight. That is where reprieve is. That is where healing is. That is where we serve again. That is where we feel joy again. And joy is really the only reason. And you will feel joy whether you're by yourself on a mountain or whether you're at a family reunion, right? That is that internal sense that matters the most to me in this process. What do you have to say about the force amplifier of moral injury on a traumatic event? Uh, that is, that may be the worst kind, right? Because it speaks to our character, right? It speaks to sort of like, who do we believe we are as men and women? And oftentimes when we serve institutions, um, that then have to take a moral stand on things, take away our gun, uh, take away service, uh, you know, our, our capacity to even put the uniform on until they figure shit out. It is just such an oxymoron in and of itself that we don't, we do a shitty job of. And I mean, I'll, I'll liken this to a little bit around, um, this is not the same, but I want to, this is how it makes sense to me. So I often talk to speak to educators, to teachers, and I would say this all the time to them, suspensions are a pipeline to prison. And when we think specifically about suspending a child, when you are in an institution where you serve children, that is what you are being called to do, to walk them home through hard things and teach them literacy and numeracy, but more importantly, teach them that they matter and that they're important and that when they screw up, we got them no matter what, yeah? And then your ultimate your ultimate way to sort of uh, navigate discipline is to remove them from the process when they fuck up. That's the deal. That's what we're going to do. We're going to suspend you until you decide you're a good person, yeah? We're going to suspend you until you can be kind. We're going to be so mean to you Take away everything that you're connected to until you decide to be a good person. Same rules apply when somebody fucks up in um, uh, a military organization, a first responder organization. You've done something that's not okay. I'm going to just excommunicate you until I decide. Right? Whoa! And I understand the importance of suspending for your own safety because we care for you and we love you and we appreciate every single second of your service. Come here. Come here. Come here. Let's figure this out together right? The separation becomes so scary. The biggest thing you can ever, ever do to, to scare a child is certain abandonment. It is our most underlying fear. And when you create a brotherhood, a sisterhood in our first responder cultures, and then in an effort to see if you're good or bad, I take that away from you. Nothing more damaging. I don't even think that was your question, but 
That's all right. So showing my kids a picture of the ad on Kijiji where it says kid for sale. That's, that, that's probably a, not the healthiest thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no. That thing like you smarten up or mommy's leaving you in Walmart. <laughs> that has happened to me only with Woolco. <laughs> Could have been Woodward's, I forget. We'll go in Zeller's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, let's get me back to the last one here. Cumulative trauma. So we talked earlier about uh, childhood trauma. Uh, does childhood trauma affect the susceptibility to PTSD for adults, at, like their, their trauma resilience as an adult? How do you mitigate that? Uh, you don't. You um, address it. And so part part of the deal is, uh, I don't know, if, are you familiar with the ACEs research? I am not. Oh, my God, dude. Okay, I'm going to send you all this stuff. So Love it. There's certainly, uh, if you just look up the adolescent ch- or, or um, adult childhood, oh, my God, I just forgot it. ACEs. Adult childhood. No. Oh, okay, I got it now. Adverse childhood experiences study. ACEs. All right. They've identified 10 things that if you experience before the age of 18, they will later fuck you up in adulthood without intervention. Okay. So trauma in and of itself is any experience encoded in terror. They've identified 10 things that largely for, for almost everybody, every child on the planet, if they experience them, they will have encoded it in terror. Uh, Those 10 things are um, sexual abuse, physical abuse uh, and emotional abuse. You, you get a point if you've experienced any of those things before the age of 18. The other thing is if you're a product of divorce, you get a point. If you have um, uh, observed your mother being treated violently, if you lived with somebody who was later incarcerated, if you lived with somebody with a mental illness, if you lived with somebody who has a um, uh, addictions issue and um, I'm going to forget the other two right now, but the, I mean, the research is widely published. Basically, you get a point if you experience any of those things before the age of 18. The more points you get, the more fucked up you'll be if without intervention. So we've made a huge mistake in this area of trauma to say that if you've experienced bad things, if you experience particularly any of those ACEs before the age of 18, uh, you are broken beyond repair. Not true. I would not commit the rest of my life or have committed my life to this area of trauma if I didn't believe in the importance of benevolence and corrective experiences. It is only why I do what I do. You can erase an ACE. You can mitigate trauma. You can assess, you can treat even those who have been in multiple tours of Afghanistan. Those have been, uh, you know, witnessed their own mother kill their father. Uh, horrific ideas that, you know, you can think about in your head. You look at Viktor Frankl, for example. This is this is my quintessential example. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning, one of the finest literary works of all time. Uh, he survived Auschwitz, watched his children die, watched his children die. Like, and, and do we need to go further? Yes, he watched his spouse die, separated from his parents, they were later killed. And he goes on, he goes on to make the biggest sense out of all of that thing and wrote Men's Search for Meaning in it. How did he do it? He said, I needed to believe one thing, that I was wired to do hard things. There was a purpose to the pain. I had to figure what that was. And then uh, I, I had to believe I was wired for connection. And the last thing I wanted to do was stay connected to people because I was so fucking mad and hypervigilant and scared and all of those things, right? So part of the biggest, uh, I think, research is not just about how we identify trauma, who's experienced it, what causes PTSD. That's all really interesting. My biggest 
response to, or my biggest understanding, I hope my contribution to this planet is really, what do we do about it? The answer lies only in connection. The opposite, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. The opposite of suffering PTSD for all of your life is not diagnosing it and medication, it is connection. And it is the thing you are scaredest about the most because you've experienced abandonment, neglect, terror. The very thing that I'm asking you to, to sink into is the thing that's harmed you. So it becomes the hardest thing to do and, and how we walk through that becomes so critically important. There's been some recent studies on the efficacy of peer support. And after what you just said, I think I get how that's working because it, it creates a sense of connection. And for some of the people that show up at our peer support groups, that's all they have. They do not leave the house for anything except for peer support once every two weeks. Everything else, they do not do it. And perhaps that's why it is uh, shown to be as effective, sometimes more effective, but best when paired with therapy. Absolutely. And here's the issue. You and I talked about this before we started taping. My biggest concern for peer support is the lack of standardization. Yes. The lack of consistency. And so you can fuck somebody up completely if we don't understand the importance of how we stay connected and not relive the war stories. But we ask where you feel it. We provide that sense of safety and security in your own body so that you can start to feel competent and safe again. It starts on an in, from an internal focus. Uh, not an external fix, right? And I think that becomes really critical. And I love, you know, your description of, of the peer support team, uh, you know, that, that you guys have established, how you focus so significantly on, you know, being so, providing this environment where it's about connection and relationship and regulating emotion in your body. Um, the body keeps the score. My biggest trauma manual, uh, my biggest trauma resource is Bessel van der Kolk's book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's heavy and it's theoretical and it's all of those things. Uh, but it is so true about it's not what you've experienced, it's how you've experienced it that matters. Being engaged in peer support is incredibly vulnerable sector. It is so easy to fuck it up and to yeah. truly do some significant, perhaps almost irreparable damage when you were uh, well-meaning. And you and I were talking before this, I've seen it. It happened to me. <laughs> and you know it, you lived it. I did. And I've done it myself. I am not blameless. Uh, at the beginning of my journey, when I was uh, completely and totally ignorant, uh, I have damaged others with my own ignorance, not knowing any better. And um, from your perspective, how, what are the top three ways to be a douchebag when it comes, when you're trying to be good with one-to-one -one peer support? Um, what I think is, is probably even, you know, I, I think how I'd answer that question is probably the ways in which I want you to think about doing things. What I want you to think about is really just the importance of holding space. We are compelled as, as people who serve first responders to fix, to have an answer, to provide a solution or a strategy, particularly for people who are hurting. First responders, military personnel are not called into situations where they don't need to assist somebody who's in distress or something that needs to be rectified. So we are very wired to like, here's what you need to do. Here's the answer. Here's the protocol. Here's what you want. When we're in this area of first responding, uh, sorry, in um, peer supporter, this area of sort of walking our colleagues through this process, the biggest thing we do is hold space. And it is not anything that a first responder typically is good at. We are good at fixing and providing the answer. And here's what you do. And doing it quickly. 
exactly. There's a place for that. But what matters most significantly is the interjection of this most important critical skill, which is called holding space. How do I just sit with emotion that is probably going to rip your guts out, that might involve tears, that might involve hard things and hard stories? How do I sit and hold that? You do not need to respond. You do not need to fix. You need to hold space. You need to have food. You need to have uh, like something to drink and you hold space. Three words that allow me to hold space all the time is this. Tell me more. What am I missing? What was the hardest part? What do you miss the most? Any of those kind of things allow you to hold space for those hard emotions. If you find yourself saying, at least, you're fucking it up. At least <laughs> Comparative trauma. Yeah. yeah. At least at least you survived. At least you're home now. At least you know you can get pregnant. At least she's not suffering anymore. All of them are so, so... Um, comes from such good places. We, the intention, well-intentioned is, I just don't want you to be so sad, Mark, right? And, and, and spouses do to further partners all the time or, or, or kids do like, dad, it's okay. It's Christmas, dad, it's all right. At least, you know, we're here. It is the best of intention. I'm trying to shake you out of this place. I once heard yeah. somebody say after the death of a child, at least you still have three more that are healthy. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it, isn't that wow? It is so hurtful. But the but what I want us to really understand is the intention behind it, which is I love you so much that I don't I want to take this pain away. I I I see your pain so much that I want to make it better, and I'm trying to fix it before I feel it. You cannot fix anything that you haven't felt. You have to process it. Yeah, got to name it to tame it. Dan Siegel says that you got to name it to tame it what does this feel like well it's just like fucking fucking dumb because all these fucking assholes don't give a shit about me in this organization okay stop it i don't care about the what where do you feel it what do you mean where do i feel it in your body right now i don't know slow it down is it okay fine it's in my shoulders right deep breath shake your shoulders body keeps the score my friend body keeps the score let's slow it down a little bit Right. I saw you doing that. Yep, I'm, 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 I'm responding. This is what we do with uh, ART every Tuesday morning. Exactly. Right. And yep. ART is a constant thing that I want you to think about all the time. How do we do this? Not even inside of therapy sessions, but outside. How do we know that our body keeps the score? So as a first responder, for example, when you're just out getting groceries and you hear a siren, guess where your shoulders are going to be? Up high. Yep. So when we are aware of that, you name it to tame it. I got it. Not my monkey. I mean, not my circus, not my monkeys. I don't need to respond to that. You know, I'm going to send all the love and light to who's ever driving that bus today, but it ain't me, right? And you hear the dispatch sound. 911 operators get this all the time. That, yeah? That in and of itself is not scary. That is not scary. There's nothing wrong. That cannot hurt you. It's the association. What I've paired it with, paired it with yeah. has. And so just that sound increases my heart rate, my blood pressure. And all I want you to do is draw attention to those two things. Okay. 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 I got it. Whatever it is I got. Cause you do, you fucking do. But when you're not aware of those two things, this is what destroys you. The un, um, I was gonna say unadulterated response, the unawareness 
the lack of awareness between what that does to your body and how it fucks up your, your prefrontal cortex. When I can start to bring awareness to that, there's nothing wrong with you, my sweet man. You have a psychological injury. There's nothing wrong with you, my sweet girl. PTSD is not a mental illness. It is a psychological injury. End of story. Would you say that one of the bigger, if not the biggest barriers to recovery is that PTSD creates a blindness that um, makes it more difficult to be self-aware, but yet self-awareness is the only way to be on the path to recovery. It's this vicious circle. Would you agree with that? Yep. Uh, I would agree completely. And let me tell you, relationship is the foundation of dialogue. I will not move anybody in therapy who I haven't established a relationship with first. Relationship is the foundation of dialogue. So in our push, in our peer support groups, if I'm going to do any therapy stuff, my biggest my biggest sense is I gotta I gotta establish trust. I'm gonna bring food. I'm gonna bring snacks. I'm gonna speak your language. I'm gonna do what I I'm gonna throw up, show up authentically. Then and only then will we have some vulnerable dialogue. That's how we get home. Now to create that safe space for people to hold space, I've often said, and uh, I'm pretty much a broken rep- record at group that the number one human emotional need is affirmation. And to give it, you can't do it with words. You have to do it by listening, which is very counterintuitive for people. But it's also what you were saying earlier, that uh, communication is, it's mostly listening and only partially talking. But uh, truly listening, but more importantly than listening, it's it's the understanding piece. It's listening to understand and not to respond or react, which is in the first responder veteran world uh, is you're so hardwired to react and it's exactly what you have to fight. It's the wrong thing to do. It has to be, um, you have to understand, not react. That's, that's the barrier. And you know, so many people have understood this outside the world of first responders and it's just going to be a, a shift in culture that will take time, but we're getting there. Stephen Covey said to seek first to understand before being understood. And I think it is the hardest thing because, you know, you're supposed to take charge and act and fix and keep people safe. Those things are so true. And you've done beautifully at this job. And right now, what we need to get a little bit better at is seeking first to understand before being understood. It's going to take a cultural shift to understand that, that even in training, that is how we need to approach. um, That's how we need to approach how we, we train our first responders. We don't do that now. And um, we treat you poorly in training, which is bullshit. And when I say to people, why do you do that? Well, because we've always done it this way. That is the most harmful, scariest statement in the human language, because we've always done it this way. Guess what? It's not working. We have too many veterans and first responders that are killing themselves. We've got to do something fucking different. And it starts at training. You don't beat the shit out of people who you want to serve this country. You don't tell them that they're useless and they're maggots and they're worthless and expect them to rise. That is not how this is going to work anymore. I think the idea of it, and I've wrestled this, the course I was on for battle school was the very last traditional course. Um, About three years prior, they stopped hitting you across the shins with a pay stick. So I didn't get struck with a pay stick. I I got, uh, I was just after that. But I was the very last traditional course where they they beat you down pretty good. Um, uh, Multiple days without sleep. Uh, The hallucinations kick in really awesome around 36 hours. But uh, as far as being treated uh, like junk and pushed to insane limits, I was the last course, uh, 9106, that ever did, or no, 9111, that ever did that. Um, 
so right now it's not as mentally difficult. It's not as physically difficult, but the training is probably better today than it was then. But the, the idea was back then is that, Hey, we're going to put you in combat. Uh, so we have to make sure that we got to put you in this pressure cooker now to make sure that you don't crack when, um, when combat actually happens. And, and then about one third of any course ever graduate, which was exactly the number. We started with 18, graduated with five, which is the smallest course ever to graduate that battle school. Just five out of 18 made it, the rest didn't. And um, that was normal though. Roughly one third of every course would pass, two thirds would fail. Um, and it'd be sent, sent packing. So is that completely wrong or partially wrong or completely wrong? Completely wrong. And, and here's the reason, and this is, this is why it's going to be difficult to have this conversation, right? Because for such a long time, we've had the under the estimation, right? That if I prepare you for it, it means I'm going to beat the shit out of you. But here's what's going to happen in that process. The people who survived that, right? I've now got this very clear understanding that I have to be tough as nails, that I have to be worse than the, I have to be so strong in this situation that I cannot weaken. I cannot be vulnerable. It has taken me such a hard thing to get to this place. Now, the exact opposite is true. Who I'd want to take is the guy who fell out first. I mean, there is so much in this process. You cannot prevent PTSD by creating it. I have to prepare you for the job to say, this is going to be hard. I need you physically and emotionally available. And here's how we're going to do it. Who surrounds you? Who's your support system? This is going to get hard. You're going to get psychologically injured. Who loves you and who do you love? I need to speak to them so that when you fall, not if, but when they catch you and they understand what it means. I don't want them to shut you out. I want them to understand that you're going to be irritable post-shift work. I want them to understand that when hard things come, you're going to want to protect them and not tell them because you don't want to vicariously traumatize them. I want you to make sure you eat and you sleep well because your brain can then process trauma, right? That, that I mean, the animals rarely get PTSD. I mean, there's been beautiful research on this because they understand when hard things come, they get in a fight, they get aggressive with another animal, they shake physically and they will have sleep, or they, they'll, they'll sleep or they'll have sex. They do three things post a significantly trauma interaction, which allows their brain to process trauma. Sounds a lot so, like a soldier, actually. No, it's not like a soldier. <laughs> what they do is they just take away their, their, their sleep. Well, I'm going to deprive you. You feel like shit, so you can't eat, you can't drink, you want to just throw up. Right. And then I've taken you away from your family. That's it. Right. So how do I expect you to survive hard things when I take away all the things that are going to allow you to process trauma? But then I put you with another bunch of people that the culture is don't fucking cry. You pussy. Come on. You're good. Are we good? Did you see his fucking head? Yeah, man. It fucking blew up. So fucking cool. Right. No, it wasn't cool. That was somebody's son. Right. And I don't want to feel it because I'll crack. So that becomes really difficult, right? How do we keep you in a place where you can do hard things and understand that connection is the piece that has to come after that? PTSD is a son of a bitch to treat. It is a son of a bitch to treat. And um, a lot of people, they never stick with the therapy because it is a son of a bitch to go through. Just as a, for instance, three years for me, every Tuesday. And... uh, it took me a while to figure out the the correlation, but the night before it, the stress would be so bad that it actually need to be within six feet of the toilet at all times. Oh, and, uh, first. nightmares on Monday nights guaranteed. And oh. then, then the Tuesday would just be wrecked. And depending on the topic, I could be just trashed for the next two or three days after. Yeah. Um, 
so most people don't put up with that and they sure don't put up with it for three years, but that's sometimes how long it takes. It takes a couple, th- few years and uh, to, to get any progress. So most people don't stick to it. They, they, they pop out. It's just too goddamn much. And I 100% don't fault anybody for that, but it's feel, feel the pain now or, or feel the pain later. You know, can I tell you, can I tell you just real sure. quick? I mean, I know we're running close on time, but I want to tell you real quick, my understanding about that. A psychological injury is the same as a physical injury. If you, if, but we think about them two very differently. Like many people with PTSD have said this to me. I wish I had cancer. I wish that this was something that I could physically treat because this emotional havoc, nobody understands. People don't rush over with flowers and baking when you're having fucking psychotic breaks and uh you're hallucinating or you can't get out of bed right there's not the same support around this process and a psychological injury however is the same as a physical injury now for example this is what happens to me as a psychologist let's just play along for a second if you are let's say you are a um a rugby captain the team of the rugby you're this strong tough guy and you're out there and you're like i got it and you're playing all the things and you blow your knee out Okay, you shoot the patella right around to the back of it, and it's fucking bad. Everybody around you knows it's bad, and you're like, nope, I'm tough. You grab your patella, shoot it back on the front of your knee, and you're like, good. And everybody's like, are you good? I mean, you just had a massive physical injury, and you're like, good, I'm good. And you march off the field just kind of showing them you're good. And in your head, you're like, I'm not fucking good. You go home that night, and you're like, this is so fucking painful, but I got to show up again tomorrow. I can't show them weakness. And so you start to play again and now you're not sleeping because see, it's painful. And so now you're medicating, you're taking a little more Tylenol and that doesn't cut it. So then you're drinking and then you're doing, taking some other big heavier pills just to kind of get yourself to sleep and to function. And then pretty soon the guys on the field are like, what, are you okay? You're like, what the fuck is your problem? Yes, I'm okay. Why are you fucking asking me that? And then they're sitting you because of course you're wobbling. You're, you're kind of like limping. You're not as fast as you used to be. And you're like, you're, you're all assholes. Hmm? Now, what happens is in a physical injury, if somebody would come to me and say after three, four, five, 10, 20 years and say, doc, I need to speak to you for a second. I think I had a physical injury. Okay. Can I take a look at it? This is usually what happens in my office. Nope. You can't. I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to have to just take a look before we can decide whether we can sort of put that back into place. Okay, fine, fucking look at it, but don't touch it. So I'll say, yep, it looks to me like you blew your knee out, friend, right? It's a bad one and it hasn't healed properly. Okay, well, what are we gonna have to do? I, and I say, well, I'm gonna have to break your leg and uh, I'm gonna have to re-break the leg and we're gonna have to put it into place and then we're gonna have to do some physio and do all that kind of shit, okay? And you're like, is it gonna hurt? And I was like, fuck yeah, it is. You're like, I'm not doing it then. Okay, well, you choose then, dude. Like, you can walk with a limp and be fucked up that way and take drugs and alcohol to keep you numb, or we can break your leg and it's going to fucking hurt, but I promise you we'll get you back on track. So what happens is we come in, we break the leg. Every single time, this is what happens after I break a leg. Every Tuesday morning. Fuck you. Fuck you. I want to go back to being numb. Sorry, you can't. We started this. Remember we talked about that? And, and well, I can't fucking walk now. Yes, you can. Look at me, babe. Look at me. Well, I used to be able to walk faster. I know. It hurts. Uh, what do you mean we're not done? So, well, if this was a broken leg, we'd still have to do physio and we'd still have to get back and try it on for size again. And we'd have to do all those things. I'm not going to let you run out of my office. You're going to bust your leg again, asshole. Sit down. Let's try this again. Okay, fine. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, just like a physical injury, it sometimes takes six months a year, 
two years, three years. And guess what? It, with a physical injury, when that knee gets cold, when you get bumped again, when there's something that happens, you're out playing and your kids kick in the knee, you're like, oh, because it is better, but it's not the same as it ever used to be, right? And this is true about any physical injury in our body, right? You take out a tooth, your tooth you, you get a, a root canal. That's not going to be as the same as it was in the beginning. You, you are, by virtue of living, you're not the same today as you were yesterday, by virtue of living. And many of you who have served this country or are first responder in any capacity are not the same because you're a hero. You have served sometimes in the ultimate of sacrifices, which makes you a hero and amazing. We got to figure out how that serves you well now and doesn't rob you from your life. When I started all this, the um, one thing that was told to me by somebody actually at the Royal Canadian Legion, for which I will never bash, although many people do, uh, they helped me when I was in a total tailspin and truly at the end of my rope. Uh, I reached out to the Legion because I didn't know where else to go. They got back to me, bing, bang, boom, booked an appointment, got over there, talked with the service officer. And what Mike Burgess told me was, look, this is a long, hard, shitty, shitty, shitty road. However, the man that or person that you will become at the end of it is stronger, better, wiser than you can possibly imagine at this point in your life. So just shut the fuck up and do it. Take the help, walk the path, and you will be stronger, better. It's the whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of idea, but it's actually true. Uh, And here I am three years later uh, writing books on the topic, uh, running peer support groups. I'm still fucked up, but not nearly as fucked up as I was before. Of course. Of course. It's called life. That's amazing. It's an amazing story. And I think, I think this is so true. And I think what, what you offer is hope because you know, I mean, if I took healing happens, yeah, healing happens. And when I take you back four years, you know, when you're in the the fetal position on your bathroom floor and you know, you're two steps away from, from death. um, So many people who listen to your podcast are, are there, have been there, have considered it. You know, and I think that's why I do the work that I do is because it's a little bit about how can we connect these, how can we connect people again to say, okay, there's hope, there's hope. It's hard work, but there's hope. Every storm does pass. And I I hate using um, woo woo metaphors like that, except that they're true. I know. They're fucking true. I know. You know, every storm really does pass. And speaking of woo woo, um, I have run across in my journey all kinds of goddamn woo-woo um, that I've got. I've got my hopes up, and I thought, okay, let's let's give this go. Let's let's do this neural feedback uh, or biofeedback loop. Your arms up, arms down, open, and uh, all promising to tickety boo, bing bang boom. You're fixed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You do not need. You're not in war anymore. You're fine. War does not have a hold on you anymore. You're fine. Oh, okay. Then I have a horrific nightmare that I have like, fuck, that didn't work at all. You asshole. I'm not fine. I'm not fine at all. Um, It's not an end game. game. Are there any shortcuts that you've seen that work? Not one. Not one. Off air, I'm going to direct you to one of the podcasts I did of somebody with more degrees than a thermometer, uh, uh, who, who claims a shortcut really, need, I, I called him out a little, didn't call him out. I was more cross-examining a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh, 
that doesn't sound right. But I'll, uh, uh, after the call, I'll give you the name and the episode number to, to check it out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Maybe do a response on it. But uh, I think we're about there, Jody. Yeah. I think we're about yeah. there. How do people get a hold of you and what you're doing? Uh, I'm at www.drjodycarrington.com. Jody and with a Y, J-O-D-Y. Yeah, and um, I, uh, I was just telling you before this, I've just created a course. It's called Hello Hero, uh, and I'm so fucking nervous about it because I just hope it's going to serve well. So we're going to launch that in the next month or so. So I'd love your feedback. I'd love your listeners feedback. Um, it's a scary place to get into when you're not a first responder, when you haven't served. And, um, I don't claim to know any of the things I just know what helps. And so if I can serve this community in any way, uh, that's going to be my goal to talk about trauma and how we got to feel it, uh, to survive it. And uh, I'm just so grateful for what you do, uh, for your service, for everybody who listens. Um, and that is so cliche to say, thank you for your service. Um, people say shit like that all the time, but I really (laughs) fucking mean it. I really fucking mean it. And I, and I, and I see what it can do to your families and to your spouses and, uh, to your heart. And this holy work should not cost this much. It should not cost this much. And, um, I, and I hope we can switch that. I hope we can create communities that switch that. And so, so that's my goal. And uh, just to recap to those listening, the shitty road of recovery, because it is shitty, is worth it. And healing does happen. Absolutely. All right. Stay on the line. And uh, Dr. Jody Carrington, thank you so very much. Uh, Thank you, sir. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible, with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast.